I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking with Shireen Hunter, an honorary fellow at the Prince Awalid bin Talal Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding at the Georgetown University Walsh School of Foreign Service and author of over 27 books, including Iran Divided, Historic Roots of Iranian Debates in Identity, Culture, and Governance in the 21st Century. The backbone of this conversation will be Shireen's article for Responsible Statecraft entitled Time to Look Inward. Not all of Iran's problems are caused by the West. In said article, Shireen argues that Iranian leadership, specifically its hardline elements, must adopt a realist school of foreign policy perspective. Of course, as you'll hear in our conversation, Shireen believes this is not only a problem in Iran, but also the U.S. as well. In addition to that, we will also discuss realism more broadly and why it should not be used as a synonym for militarism, or for that matter, associate it so closely with the figure of Henry Kissinger, who Shireen argues is not as much of a realist as he's made out to be. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. With that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Shireen Hunter author of the Responsible Statecraft article, Time to Look Inward, Not All of Iran's Problems Are Caused by the West. Welcome to Parallax Views, Shireen Hunter of the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, and author of the responsible statecraft piece, Time to Look Inward, Not All of Iran's Problems Are Caused by the West. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm very well. And yourself? (laughs) Very good. Very good. I was very interested in talking about this uh, piece. I believe it came out on December 28th from uh, Responsible Statecraft, Time to Look Inward, not all of Iran's problems are caused by the West. Um, I was interested in getting your perspective on the situation with Iran and the uh, Iran talks, the talks over the uh, JCPOA, uh, because I, a lot of times I've uh, said that you know the U.S. needs to consider the ways that it has 
harmed Iran. But there, there are two sides to every story. So uh, maybe you could give a little bit of background about yourself to start and uh, your expertise on Iran. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, you know, I was born in Iran. I am uh, of Iranian descent. And um, I did uh, my education uh, until BA in Iran. And, um, and I also served the, at the Iranian foreign ministry uh, before the revolution and served abroad, including in United Nations. Uh, so, and then of course, after the revolution, uh, um, there was a sort of a, what we can call uh, uh, cleansing, you know, of uh, foreign ministry and many of Iran's uh, in general uh, um, uh, bureaucracy. And, and so also then I, at the time I was uh, uh, in, uh, when the revolution happened, I was at Harvard as a research fellow. And so when this uh, um, revolutionary activities began, I realized that I really don't have much future in Iran. So I stayed in United Nations, in United States. And then I started uh, working. Uh, I first worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And then I worked at the Georgetown University as a uh, visiting and research professor. And then um, after more or less retired, I am a fellow at the uh, ACMCU. And I have um, written an awful lot on Iran and Islam and Middle East politics. So, and basically I have been for the past uh, 42 years uh, following Iranian events. What was your opinion on the um, the initial uh, the, the JCPOA uh, when the U.S. first got into it with uh, under Obama? Because it, it, I I've thought about that a lot, and it seems like it was very it, it's really a, a monumental thing in my view because there was mm -hmm. so much of uh, just the weight of history on both the U.S. and Iran, and getting that deal done it, it seemed like a very significant accomplishment. Well, it was. It was a very significant uh, accomplishment, both for um, President Obama uh, and also for the Iranian leadership after, at the time, which was the President Rouhani uh, and, of course, uh, his foreign minister, Javad Zarif. The problem was that um, uh, basically the problem was that there were a lot of uh, people who were opposed to this deal, both in the United States and in Iran. And consequently, you know, one could say that even before the ink on this uh, agreement was dry, they began sabotaging the agreement. Um, in the US, I think that uh, immediately after the nuclear related sanctions were lifted, uh, the Treasury Department imposed new sanctions under new uh, pretexts. Uh, in Iran, the hardline elements who basically were opposed to JCPOA because they worried that this might be the first step uh, towards a process that eventually might lead to uh, some kind of a, a Iran-US accommodation, if not exactly reconciliation. And so they did actions that were somewhat uh, provocative. For example, uh, uh, 
uh, they immediately after agreement, they, uh, they uh, uh, fired uh, new missiles. And then uh, a month or so later, they captured uh, US uh, naval uh, um, officers and personnel that they had <laughs> drifted into Iranian uh, waters. Now, it wasn't just the fact of arresting them, but they really, um, they, you know, um, mistreated them. And then, you know, these pictures uh, happened outside. And of course, you know, even so the, the, the agreement, I think, uh, was still useful because it put a cap on Iran's nuclear activities. And, um, and also, you know, when you had a mechanism, you know, if, if the US, for example, uh, had allowed, uh, uh, you know, economic relations with Iran to um, begin, at the time Iran, you know, wanted to buy Boeing aircraft and all kinds of other things. But opposition, uh, both in Iran and in US, it's not just one side, it's a both, both sides. Um, it basically made it, uh, you know, impossible. And then of course the fi um, final and fatal blow came when President Trump, uh, uh, you know, withdrew from the JCPOA and embarked on the so-called uh, policy of maximum pressure. So for my audiences, maybe you could describe a little bit, what are the divides in Iran? And I, I think you've even written a book about this, uh, yes. Iran divided the historical roots of Iranian debates on identity, culture, and governance in the 21st century. So people can read that, but maybe you could give a uh, a brief summary of what you think the, the key dividing lines are. Well, basically, you know, one thing we have to remember that uh, a major, major uh, divide that was created in Iran, it was after the Arab invasion. Uh, or, you know, um, again, there are disagreements in Iran regarding this. Uh, Arab invasion roughly in 642 um, AD. Uh, at the and Iran's Islamization. At the time, you know, Iran was a cohesive, you know, of course there were differences, I'm not suggesting, a cohesive culture. You know, it had its own religion, it had its own traditions, language and all that. But, you know, after um, the Arab invasion, basically a major shift occurred. And it was the people to some extent, although even they adopted Islam, they remained very loyal to Iran. They wanted to retain its own distinct cultural identity. Um, like, for example, Iranian language underwent a lot of change under the influence of Arabic uh, language and Islamic uh, religion. But nevertheless, it's a distinct language. It, Iran was not completely Arabized like other societies were, whether, you know, Egypt, Syria, North Africa. And so there was always this divide between Iran and Islam. There are people in Iran who are, I call them Iranist. They, they want to put a priority for them priority, and I put myself in that category, is Iran. Doesn't mean that you deny Islam or the fact that, um, you know, Islam is an important part of uh, uh, Iran's heritage, but you, you, you put uh, uh, Iran 
uh, as the priority. The retaining of Iran's, uh, Iran's uh, interest uh, should be, and it has been, historically has been like that. Iran never had any, um, you know, um, called transnational ambitions. But there were, of course, some people who wanted uh, to re retain Islam's position and Islam's dominance in Iran. And they particularly became very uh, uh, concerned because uh, the process of modernization, you know, everywhere this has happened, this divide uh, within the uh, Middle East societies exists between the what I call traditionalist and the, uh, uh, and the modernist. And so in Iran, this morphed into a kind of a, um, Iran and Islam sort of thing. So this is one of the issues that has it. The other thing is, of course, again, derives from the uh, traditional and modern um, uh, sort of cleavage. Uh, and that is what kind of a, what kind of a uh, um, governing system Iran should have. At least since the late uh, um, 19th century, there has been in Iran a constitutionalist movement, people who wanted and believed that Iran should be a constitutional government uh, in which, of course, uh, parliament and people and voting and so on and representation uh, plays an important role. But there has also always been, in, again, since the, this movement, constitutional movement began, um, people who believed that uh, believed and fought constitutionalists that um, Iran's political system should be based on Islam, and of course on the Shia uh, version of Islam. The thing that has complicated uh, this cultural cleavage, which exists in other countries as well, is that. Uh, in every society, as you know, issues of identity, you cannot ignore issues of identity. Issues of identity and uh, ideology and power are uh, uh, totally intertwined. So for instance, one reason why the clergy and the Islamists and so on didn't want modernization, were against constitutionalism, uh, is because their own power, their own, their own kind of, uh, uh, their own kind of control over society would be undermined, uh, and so these are all, uh, you know, uh, intermixed. Iran, Islam, question of uh, uh, constitutionalism, uh, and. I don't want to use the word democracy because it's a very loaded word that I would rather put representative government uh, and, uh, you know, a, a religion-based government, um, which in Shia Islam gives a very uh, prominent place to uh, the clergy as basically the arbiters of both politics and uh, culture. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's um, and of course, all of this is connected to the issue of power, who rules the country and any shift in this uh, uh, areas obviously has implications for power relationship. And now a word from one of our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. 
It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. Now, what I was really interested in your article, Responsible Statecraft. The reason I was interested in that is, you know, I've talked about things like the maximum pressure campaign and sanctions, and I've been very critical of of certain U.S. actions in the past few years with regards to Iran. But I also think that some people have a tendency to have this, I, I would almost say, inverted form of American exceptionalism where they assume that Iran doesn't have any agency, that the big bad U.S. is... sort of the reason behind everything. And I want you to discuss why that is maybe too much of a black and white picture, even if we are critical of certain actions the U.S. has taken in the past years. Absolutely. I actually would submit, of course, Iran has agency. In fact, if you really are a a, a fair observer, uh, and of course, this gets into you know muddy waters. I don't want to get involved in that. And U.S. Um, has often pursued an interventionist policy regarding Iran, uh, including when uh, during the monarchy. Uh, I think there were a number of mistakes were made, um, which we don't want to get into that, which I think that uh, contributed to a lot of problems in Iran. However, um, I think that there has, there is, you cannot really damage a country unless that country wants to be damaged. And I don't want to be unfair uh, to Iran, obviously not. In general, this is a problem that often um, in discussions and the you know press and other things, they look at it as a kind of a battle of good and evil. They really don't look at the uh, much more complicated dynamics, for example. In general, a lot of the things that we have seen happening in the, uh, you may want to call it global south or third world and so on, have really been the consequence of the the, the dislocations that the process of modernization, unsuccessful as it has been in many places, has created. And a lot of the Iran's problems also really, I don't think it's anybody's fault as such, including Iran, until recently, including Iranians, but rather it is the consequence of a country which when it started very timidly the process of its modernization, and let's say in the mid to late 19th century, it was a, a sort of a medieval society. And then suddenly in the space of uh, you know, 50, 60 years, it had modernized a lot. And this of course created a lot of you know, dislocations. The difficulty that I have with the current uh, um, 
And again, I have to make a distinction. There are moderate elements within the Iranian leadership. There are people who uh, are trying to kind of reconcile this divides in Iran. I mean, uh, as I mentioned in my article, I particularly think that President Khatami wanted you know, to do that. Um, but um, there are uh, elements in Iran, and again, hardliner, just a blanket term, does not really uh, completely explain the, the dynamics. But there are those that really uh, almost uh, are enemies of Iran. They would like to to just uh, Iran to become subsumed in a kind of a, a, a united Muslim world. Now, if that could have been achieved, the united Muslim world, I wouldn't have objected. But that is not going to happen, despite everything that they say. Um, the state, nation state, even though, of course, with qualification, is still the main kind of unit of the international political system. Uh, so, but some of these people, including Ayatollah Khamenei himself, they have other priorities. I think that Khamenei absolutely uh, would like to see all vestiges of Iran's past eliminated. Now, but they haven't been successful because there is uh, still there is a lot of uh, commitment among a significant number of Iranians to this past. But he would like to do that. And the other thing, his priority is really is not just to improve Iran's position or make it secure, except, as I mentioned in my article, uh, to use it as a kind of a headquarters uh, to then uh, achieve other goals, whether it is, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, liberating uh, uh, Jerusalem, Al-Quds, or, or uh, some other things. And I think that uh, this is one reason that uh, they have been insisting on certain things. Uh, um, like, for example, you know, I really don't see any reason for Iran to be so excessively engaged in Syria. I mean, Bashar al-Assad is not a friend of Iran. And I actually, right here, I predict that if the Arab states uh, uh, accept to bring Syria back into the Arab fold and give them enough money and so on, I think that Assad over time will abandon Iran. This is what I am getting at. And then they have used this uh, so-called anti-imperialist struggle. Okay, I am not in favor of imperialism. I mean, I, I have... Uh, my family at least have experienced a different kind of imperialism, Russian imperialism, Soviet imperialism. But for Iranians, it seems to me, imperialism means uh, American imperialism. And Chinese have a much, much more predatory approach. Now, I'm not saying that the Western businesses and so on haven't done a lot of damage in the third world, they have. Um, but so have Chinese, so have the Soviets. You look at Central Asia, um, the, the agricultural policies of the Soviet Union has absolutely destroyed large swaths of land in Central Asia, parts of Uzbekistan. So my uh, complaint about the, uh, the, the Iranian uh, decision makers is that Nobody says that you shouldn't have any ideals. We all have to have ideas. I, I think it's legitimate for Iran uh, to support Palestinian aspirations and uh, rights. But 
it's not for Iran to be right uh, up front when Arab states are going and making peace with Israel. I mean, after all, uh, you know, Arabs have much more responsibility or other Muslim states, Pakistan, Malaysia, um, many other larger Muslim states are not doing anything. So this is what I am saying. I think that they are using this question of uh, anti-imperialist struggle or um, anti-Zionist struggle. And- I, I think the term that has come up a lot when talking about this also is uh, a term that people may be unfamiliar with, uh, the, the axis of resistance. Which oh, yes. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that. Well, the axis of resistance is really uh, is a, a reconfiguration of what uh, in the 19, late 1960s and early 70s used to be called the, the axis of rejection. The so-called, it was known as Arab Rejectionist Front, which the PLO, um, Egypt uh, under Nasser, and Syria and Iraq under the revolutionary regimes were part of that. Uh, Their uh, argument was that there can be no reconciliation with Israel, and there can be no deal on the Palestinian issues. Uh, And what has happened, of course, Uh, You cannot use the term uh, axis of rejection because uh, partly also, of course, the Israelis have been adamant in not really engaging in constructive talks with the Palestinians and giving them at least some basics of uh, autonomy and uh, nationhood. Um, So I think that... um, and now there is no peace talk or anything. So you can't say rejection, we are rejecting. The, so it has become an axis of resistance. We are resisting uh, the so-called, uh, I mean, uh, uh, as in their understanding, uh, Zionist and imperialist conspiracy against Muslims and so on. And axis of resistance really consists of Iran and um, uh, Syria, I have. I, I think Syria is more like a, if any, if somebody was willing today uh, to give Syria, including Bashar, uh, you know, to give, accept his rule in Syria and give back the Golan Heights, I think Syria would be ready to reach some kind of a agreement uh, with Israel. So I wouldn't even put uh, Syria completely in the axis of rejection. And then there is Hezbollah. And Hamas is the same thing. Hamas and relations with Iran is very tenuous. They are not particularly uh, fond of Iran. Uh, I have written on this. I have another book called Arab-Iranian Relations, uh, Dynamics of Conflict and Accommodation. Um, So this is what I am trying to get at. I'm saying that Iran should put its own legitimate interest I'm not, when I'm talking about that, does not mean that you have to be oblivious to other moral and ethical values or responsibilities. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that Iran should not put itself, Iranian leadership should not put Iran and its populations, which have been suffering now uh, for a long time, for 40 years, basically, um, for some, uh, you know, uh, for some unattainable, unattainable objectives. 
Um, you know, so it's uh, this is this is my major complaint. Uh, it has gotten worse. There were periods that uh, there were, you know, moderate elements were in ascendance, and they tried to have a, a much more um, realistic foreign policy. And the interesting things, and and the strange thing is that in many other areas like in the Caucasus or in Central Asia, uh, Iran has not only had a moderate policy, but what I would call is a, a, a concessionary policy. They, they don't do, I mean, Iran's neighbors do all kinds of things to Iran and Iran doesn't respond. Look at even with the Taliban who um, are very anti-Iran, Iranians are going out of their way to befriend them. What I'm trying to say is that why can you, for instance, accommodate the uh, Taliban, but you don't want even to talk to America? Talking to America does not mean you accept that America is right. You know, that is not the question. That is interstate relations are not the issue of just right or wrong, you know, or cosmic battle, no. Um, but the Iranians, unfortunately, and so Ayatollah Khamenei is willing to see Iranians suffer, but not to talk to Americans, even within a multilateral uh, format. So before we close out here, what, what yeah. interested me about your article is that, uh, you know, here in the U.S., I think we have people like, um, you know, Stephen Walt and a lot of the people at the uh, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft who are arguing we need to have a more realist uh, foreign policy. And you're essentially arguing that, you know, people like Walt want that here in the U.S. They feel that we've gone astray of realism. You're saying that Iran uh, has also gone astray of, of realism and needs to consider, uh, you know, what is best for Iran. Uh, what is accomplishable with regards to uh, Iranian foreign policy? Is that correct? Absolutely. I have always been, I guess, since my days when I was studying at London School of Economics and uh, some of the newfangled international theories were banded around like the behavioralist and so on, which then they morphed into the constructivist school. I think the fact of the matter is, whether one likes it or not, it's the power relationships and the, uh, uh, that shape international relations and actually even in some of the domestic relations. Uh, Aristotle's famous thing that uh, uh, man is a political animal and so on. And politics is about power, power and privilege. Now, the question that I have is that um, realizing the role of power doesn't mean that you have to become militarized. Quite the opposite, quite the opposite. It, 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 you, for example, those people in the US who are saying that every time somebody challenges us, we have to go and bomb, bomb them. Well, that is not correct because what has happened, and I guess the history of the wars since 9-11 shows that US has exhausted in many ways itself. And so its ability to project real power has been uh, undermined. And the same thing is about Iran. I mean, when you don't have uh, economic power, when you don't have money to run your own country, 
how can you be powerful? So this is what I am I'm talking about. I am a realist. And I think that in that regard, I think that uh, um, I have always been a realist. I always found the, to me, the ultimate uh, international relations theorist is uh, Hans Morgenthal. Nobody has really added much to that except, you know, academics for a lot of reasons need to come up with new with new theories, you know, uh, because they have to write books and they have to justify their existence. And so they have come up. And then realism got, I think, that a bad name uh, during the Vietnam War. But the fact is that US policy at the time was not a realistic policy. A realist would have realized that the, the Vietnam War is unwinnable and that there's no major uh, concern for US. It was an ideological war. It was a, a consequence of the Cold War thing, the theory of uh, domino issues. You know, The same thing is to some extent, if you allow Iran, if you accommodate Iran, you're going to have other Irans coming up. It's, it's a, um, no, I think that the, the, the um, and also the thing is many people nowadays, of course, the situation is worse in Iran, that talk about international relations, they don't have any understanding of the, some of the ABCs of that. You know, um, I will not dare to talk about, you know, agricultural products or medical issues because I don't know anything, but everybody can talk about international affairs. Anyone who reads the paper thinks it's an expert on international affairs. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask too, since I mentioned the axis of resistance, I, I see that term get used more and more. And I, I see people use it in, in sort of a, a this is bad critical way. And I, you know, I think there's Iranians that use it in a, in a more positive way. But I, I think what's interesting is I don't think the axis of resistance isn't a, um, it's not like an actual organization, uh, no. you know, and, and there, the relationships between say Syria and Iran um, and these other elements, uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, those relationships aren't things that are, uh, necessarily set, set in stone, there are contentions between all these elements. No, no, not at all. I think that, you know, the problem is that the world axis of resistance and so on, both in the U.S. and by Iran, um, are really used for uh, advancing whatever policy they have themselves. Uh, Iran wants to try to show we have allies in the Middle East and so on. Um, i Personal, my personal view, it's not based on any scientific uh, um, analysis or anything, but it's just more of a gut feeling. And uh, the fact that, you know, I have been following international affairs for more than uh, 50 odd years. Um, uh, you know, in fact, often countries that who support groups become themselves, it becomes a situation of the tail wagging the dog. So, um, I, I agree with you. I think that everybody exaggerates the importance of the so-called axis of resistance. I think the fact is that the greatest, in my opinion, I still I am a firm believer in that, the greatest cause of the Middle East instability is still the unresolved question of the Palestine. Um, because everybody uses that. 
Uh, I mean, uh, uh, before Iran, it was Nasser uh, that was uh, the radical. After Nasser, then became Saddam Hussein and, and so on. And then was Hafiz al-Assad. And then Iran assumed that. Even at some point, you know, Erdogan got into act, although he is much more of a realist. Um, and also what I'm trying to say is that even if you have tomorrow a, a regime change in Iran or something and Iran doesn't, um, you know, uh, pay attention to Levant and Palestine, I bet that there will be some other country at some point that will, uh, you know, for whether, um, sincere reasons or merely for mercenary reason will pick that up. I think this is one of the major problems that has not been resolved. And I, I don't see any in near future anything happening. Yeah, I was going to mention in that regard, one of the things that really interested me in your article is that you're not really saying uh, whether support for the, the Palestinian cause is bad or good. You're not making any moral judgment. You're essentially no. saying that Iran may be overshooting with regards to its uh, ambitions when it comes to issues related to Israel, Palestine, and the U.S. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. You know, the, uh, um, the again, also, I do make a value judgment in the sense that uh, both as a realist, but also as someone that uh, cares for Iran's future and its survival and all that, um, I am making my only moral judgment on that is that the priority of Iranian leadership, of whatever uh, whatever uh, uh, you know um, ideological color they are, leftist, Islamist, nationalist, or whatever, it should ultimately be. Uh, the know, leadership should be people, focused on the Iranian people Iran rather than anything. Iranian people. I mean, right now, uh, you know, uh, because of uh, the uh, unwillingness of um, the Iranian hardliners to, to come to some uh, terms with the U.S. and Europe as well, and even China and, and Russia. And Iran's, uh, uh, you see, another thing that I am very upset about is that the Iranians... Um, unwillingness to realize the, the, the configuration of power, what has done, it has, it, must, it has enabled other countries and not just Russia and China, but Iran neighbors, countries that were almost as much smaller than Iran and less uh, you know, uh, uh, um, potential at least to manipulate Iran. And Iran doesn't respond to that. So it goes and even it's, you know, again, I say, I am a logical person. I'm a rational person. I don't, I am saying, for example, asking Iranians, why is it against Iran's dignity uh, to talk to America, but it's not to Iran's dignity uh, to ignore insults that people like Erdogan and others uh, um, throw at Iran? Why is it? What is the conception of dignity? One's dignity gets only wounded if you talk to West. This is what I'm trying to say. I think that the statecraft should not deal with this kind of issues, you know. Uh, and I, I, I'm saying I, I do that in regard to United States as well. Every single thing in the uh, world is not um, vital to U.S. interests. And, and, and of uh, course, we we should note you're you're saying that. You're talking when you're when you're saying uh, Iranians that don't want to talk to the U.S. You're, you're specifically talking about the hard hardliners because there are moderates as well. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and of course, I have to uh, say, uh, you know, uh, open a parenthesis and say that, unfortunately, uh, there have been elements inside US who have been also hawkish and uh, have not responded positively uh, to the um, kind of forthcoming um, actions or, uh, you know, uh, by Iran. I mean, the starting with the even the, the uh, first Bush administration after the uh, first um, Persian Gulf War, um, at the time Rafsanjani was in power, Iran had been devastated by eight year war and was willing to, to come to some terms with the US. But, you know, the United States adopted the policy of all or nothing. Either you accept all our demands, whether domestically you can do it or not, or the deal is off. Um, the Clinton administration was not exactly very good in that. I mean, don't forget that uh, Iran, you know, asked, uh, offered the Conoco and a US company um, a deal on Iranian oil fields. And the US senators under Senator Alphonse D'Amato, under the influence of, uh, well, I don't want to get into that, um, not only did not respond positively to that, but they, um, they uh, uh, um, imposed the first sanctions on Iran, you know, in 1996 was under the Clinton administration. And of course, uh, we know the rest. Um, so and, and, I, but you would agree that the, I, I think you would agree that the sanctions have had, you know, major impacts on Iran as well. Oh, absolutely. I think that the reason, I mean, all this nonsense that uh, 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 the, you know, I remember Ahmadinejad in, uh, just before the, what Hillary Clinton called the uh, um, crippling sanctions was imposed uh, on Iran. Ahmadinejad said, oh, sanctions are just a piece of torn paper. Well, but that's what it is in 2015. An important reason why Iran agreed to JCPOA was because they really were desperate for some kind of a relief. And even now, I think that um, sanctions have devastated Iran absolutely devastated, not just economically, it has really um, torn the fabric of society. I think that, you know, when you read about, for instance, um, uh, increase in the mental health problems or all kinds of other things, I mean, you know, you can't be under constant uh, uh, pressure for 40 some odd years and this not affect you. You know, after all, you know, countries are a collection of people. We keep forgetting that. <laughs> we think that, you know, they are some kind of a, a abstract uh, construct, but, you know, they are made of people ultimately. And now a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. 
you can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. It's interesting, too, because I think with this situation of hardliners, there's almost a, a weird uh, relationship between the hardliners in the U.S. and the hardliners in Iran. In a way, they they kind of need each other. Um, uh, well, because, you know, what they are, um, the, the um, U.S. hardliners are also ideologues. I mean, you know, people like... Um, I don't want to name names, but I mean, like uh, former um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo or John Bolton or or, or people like that, and they are um, are the equivalent of some of the really Iran hardliners because they both want a final solution. You know, the Iran hardliner says that U.S. must not just reduce its presence in the Middle East, must withdraw from the Middle East, you know, and uh, short of that, you're not going to do it. Uh, the um, U.S. hawks said that the Iranian regime must be changed or must be destroyed. And short of that, we are not going to accept that. So I think that it is both a, a sort of an unrealistic ideological kind of stand. And obviously, they are, they are uh, helping one another. I think that what we are seeing, you are too young to remember, what, what we are seeing uh, is uh, similar to some extent uh, to the situation was during the Cold War. Um, the U.S. hardliners here were against detente, but there were people in the Soviet Union whose interest was in continuation of uh, uh, the confrontation. So I think, yes, they are very parallel. In fact, I really do believe, this is where I find, because including when I was teaching, uh, this is where I find the American tendency uh, popular tendency to ignore history and to think that either everything is new or then you can restart. You can't restart, you know, there are things that uh, are there that you have to deal with it one way or another. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's, it's, you have to look at history in many ways. We can learn from history. There are no, uh, there are no, uh, as some people say, there's nothing new under the sun. Even when you go all the way back to the Greeks and Romans and the Persian Empire and whatever, you see that the basic patterns of interstate relations have not changed. Um, you know, the means have changed, the discourse has changed, but uh, the basic dynamics have not changed. So that's the point I wanted to close on. I guess, you know, I, I used that term, uh, you know, the weight of history earlier, and I, I think it was an accomplishment that uh, the, the initial Iran deal went through under Obama, because, I mean, there is this long history. Uh, I mean, people talk about the Iran coup of 1953. People talk about uh, the Iranian hostage crisis. Uh, there, there is this weight of history that makes diplomacy, you know, a, a very hard thing to do, but it's something that's very necessary to do. Do you think there's still a chance that we can once again overcome the weight of history and, uh, you know, work something out uh, diplomatically once again. 
Well, I hope so. I hope so. But I would think that uh, um, it's it's not going to be easy, certainly, although I would never say it's impossible, uh, for several reasons. And most of the reason um, relates to Iran, but in U.S. also there are some structural impediments. Uh, In in Iran, I think that uh, the current uh, generation of leadership is not going to be able to shift. I mean, I don't believe that the Khamenei will uh, give a, a clear thing for you know for temporary and um, uh, accommodation. Yes, for example, cutting a deal on uh, aspects of JCPOA and getting some money back. So do they get some kind of a, a breeding space? But the current generation of Iranian leadership, I don't think that they will do. The question is that um, Khamenei is very old. The question is that you know when he dies, <laughs> he will die. When he dies, uh, who will be become supreme leader or even you will have another supreme leader or Iran would turn into some kind of a a military intelligence uh, kind of country like Iraq was before and Syria was and perhaps still is or, you know, many of the other third world countries. I don't know. A lot of people are saying that uh, uh, it's really revolutionary guards and intelligence community that are really running Iran. That is one problem, that what is going to be the nature of leadership in that. Uh, the other thing is, is that, that in, in the U.S. there are a lot of... Uh, uh, um, interests that don't want uh, I- Iran-U.S. Uh, uh, reconciliation. Um, there is the pro-Israel lobby, of course. There is uh, that what I call oil and arms lobby, which is basically countries like Saudi Arabia and um, and uh, you know UAE and so on. Um, I think that you know if you don't have an Iran threat. Uh, Why should, for example, uh, UAE buy $16 billion of aircraft from France? And then another equivalent of that, you know, when all the Middle East, the Arab people, Africa is hungry and dying, they can't get a COVID vaccine, you know, $16 billion would have bought an awful lot of COVID vaccine, but no, it went to, you know, arms. Um, So I think they are going to oppose it. I think Russia doesn't want any reconciliation between Iran and the U.S. because they have been basically um, uh, uh, manipulating the Iran thing. I mean, even right now, I'm sure that the Russians are making a connection between forthcoming on the uh, talks in Vienna and uh, Ukraine. I mean, they say, okay, we will pressure Iran to accept your conditions if you, for example, say that we are not going to take Ukraine into China the same way, you know? And this is where I get angry at Iran hardliners. States must look after their interests themselves. Others are not going to look after even in individuals. If you don't realize that you have to take certain actions to protect yourself, whether physically, mentally, and otherwise, you can't expect anybody else to do that for you, you know, whether it's your family or government or whatever. Of course, help is another thing. 
caregiver, you need help. But, you know, you have to accept responsibility for your own life and states must accept responsibility for their own life. We can't just, you know, Iranians can, can't get away to say that just, you know, U.S. is evil or imperialism, this and that, you know. Um, whether it is evil or not, you have to cope with evil also, you know, to ward it off. <laughs> So that is what my really uh, concern is. I think there are too many interests, um, both in Iran, in the region, in the US, who really don't want a reconciliation with Iran, which is based on compromise, which is based on compromise, uh, which means that US has to give some, Iran has to give some, um, regional states have to give some, but at least at the moment, I don't think that anyone is really willing to give. And the other problem with Iran, which I think even predates the current regime, is that the Iranians never have forgotten that once, once, you know, uh, uh, 2000 years ago or thereabouts, uh, they were a great power. They were the great power in the East, and Rome was the great power in the West. And so they don't seem to realize that, look, that's not the same way, that in order to maintain your interests, you have to be smarter, smarter, and to, 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 um, uh, to maximize your assets. And part of being smart is to be uh, able to deal with everybody. I mean, you know, uh, I, I always use the, this um, example of, you know, if you go and, uh, uh, you know, like to buy a house, or actually if you want to sell a house, obviously if you have several buyers, you will be able to get a better price. But if you have antagonized everybody and nobody wants to buy your house except a single person, then that person can, can uh, exact whatever price they want. The same thing in the politics. If Iran is not dealing with America, of course, China, Russia, and so on. Look, China has invested more in Saudi Arabia and in UAE than in Iran, although they claim that they have a 25-year uh, strategic agreement. It just stands to reason. All I have always said is that that just use common sense, you know. <laughs> right, and I, I think it's important because you're, I, I think you're taking a position that's, that's, you're not saying that Iran has to bend over backwards for anyone either or bend no. a knee to anyone and, and be no, no, uh, no, supplicants. No. They, no. They, they have to play the game wisely though. Exactly, that's what I mean. They have to play the game wisely, but they also have to realize, uh, you know, that they are, they are not what they used to be. I mean, the Shah also had illusions of power and look what that got him um, in general. But, you know, in the same way, the United States, if the US continues to uh, insist on, let's say, hegemony, uh, this is, is not going to go anywhere. Partly why? Because when the U.S. first emerged after the Second World War, um, Europe was destroyed. So there was no counterweight in Europe. Um, most of the world was still under colonial rule. Uh, uh, China became in throes of revolution. And so there was the, the stage was empty for U.S. to enter and take control, but things have changed. 
Europe recovered partly thanks to US efforts, whether it was the Marshall Plan or the NATO. Um, China has emerged as a big power. Colonial world is no longer uh, what it was. They are players at regional level. And so even the US has to be smarter in how to go about uh, you know, uh, securing its interest. I'm just saying this as a principle. You know, these are very principles is that one, you have to understand the realities of power around yourself and globally. Secondly, this is the number two lesson in international relations. You have to match your ambitions to your capabilities. Three, you have to retain your domestic base. I mean, ultimately, I think in Iran, the most damage to regime is going to come not from the U.S., but from the disenchantment of the people and the consequences of uh, economic problems. So basically, it's be smart about how you use. Don't be arrogant, of course. You know, like everything else, in like in human relationship, you know, uh, just. You know, respect is important. I think in, in you know, you talk to, I think uh, the, um, I guess, President Theodore Roosevelt, I, you know, uh, dictum, which is uh, similar to Bismarck, that uh, talk softly and carry a big stick applies. Iran is talking harshly and in essence doesn't have any stake. I mean, it really doesn't. They, they, they say Iran relies on its proxies. I promise you, if Iran were attacked, uh, Hezbollah is not going to attack uh, Israel. None. Uh, Iraqi militias are not going to attack anybody. They're going to look after themselves. And, and that again gets back to uh, the, the wisdom of Hans Morgenthal and, and exactly. uh, the, the realist the way of thinking. Involved. I'm a big, uh, a big. Um, I guess I'm an ideological disciple of. Uh, 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 Stephen Walt, I always, I have always been, I think any logical person will realize that, you know, it's, uh, it would be nice if it weren't like that, but it is. I mean, a lot of things have been said, nothing that doesn't have some basis in reality can succeed. I have read so many books that I have, you know, uh, just wondered and shook my head. But that was the trend at some point, and uh, you know they they provide insights. I'm not uh, I'm not dismissing it, but I think that uh, the best guide is to look at history, and uh, including recent history, to see how these things have played out, and then you can uh, make a judgment. And of course, you be, should be willing to, uh, and I am always like that, you should be willing to, uh, to re-examine your judgment in light of new evidence, in light of uh, new learning, you know. Uh, last thing, because I, I was just reminded that I should get your take on this. Uh, what do you think of the developments with regards to discussions being had between Iran and Saudi Arabia? It's, it seems like... Um, I'm not sure it's reconciliation, but there, there's at least diplomatic talks between the two. That's right. I think that, uh, you know, uh, the fact is that the Iranians and the Saudis um, have some basic differences. 
some of it is ethnicity. You know, again, you cannot ignore certain facts. The historic rivalry between Arabs and Persians is there. You know, you have to manage it. You have to reduce it, but it is there. But the most important thing, at least until recently, uh, was the sectarian differences. Uh, Iran is a Shia country and uh, Saudi Arabia was a very extreme uh, kind of uh, um, uh, Sunni Wahhabi uh, that really looks at Shias as absolute uh, heathens, heretics. However, and so, and then there has been rivalry over uh, power, not only in the Persian Gulf, uh, but also in the Middle East and the Islamic world. My understanding is particularly after Saudi Arabia became uh, involved in the Yemen war, and the Yemen war did not turn out to be a quick war and victory that Saudi Arabia has hoped, and also Iran did not manage for a variety of reasons to really um, force Saudis out of Yemen. And in other parts of the Middle East also, uh, there's a fatigue of uh, you know, the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. Lebanon has suffered a lot. So my feeling is that um, at least uh, both countries, especially Saudi Arabia, uh, have come to realize that uh, they cannot eliminate the other side. I remember uh, President Obama had a very good thing, <laughs> a point that he made and said, why can't Iran and Saudi Arabia learn to share influence and power in the Middle East, you know? And so I'm wondering whether this is the beginning of uh, uh, the dawning of some realism, both in Riyadh and Tehran. And, uh, you know, it's not going to, if it happens, it's not going to be, you know, like uh, um, everlasting uh, love. But I think that if they both sides are realistic, then they can, they can, uh, they can uh, uh, reach some kind of a modus vivendi, so to speak. And, um, I don't know whether this will happen or not. And also, of course, there is the, uh, you know, the Persian Gulf region is very vulnerable uh, to the dynamics of international uh, uh, system and the policies of the great powers. And so, in my opinion, if the United States wants some kind of uh, Arab-Iranian reconciliation in the Persian Gulf, um, that will help advance Saudi-Iranian, um, I would say not reconciliation yet, yet, although it might come accommodation. And then of course, there is the role of Israel because Israel has benefited from uh, Arab-Iranian enmity, you know, when used the Iranian threat to get the uh, agreements with um, UAE and Bahrain and, and, and so on. So I, I, I don't know. There are too many elements that have come to come together. But I think that the most significant obstacle is the question of Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia still insists uh, that, you know, Houthis should not have any role in the Yemen government and all that. And of course, that will not be possible. Uh, well, even if Iran wanted to do it, Iran cannot do it. Houthis are not just Iran's puppets. Um, 
And also, the, somehow Saudi Arabia thinks that if Iran uh, was willing, the Yemen problem can be resolved. That is also, again, unacceptable. Um, so we shall see. And I think that this most significant impediment to some kind of accommodation would be the Yemen issue. Can they come to some kind of a, uh, agreement on that? Again, based on what President Obama said, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to to share influence, but I doubt it. Saudis have a very patrimonial approach to uh, uh, to uh, to uh, Yemen, and, and I just want to make one more comment on President Obama. Why he was able uh, to do things that he did, although obviously certain structural uh, issues prevented him to go. Uh, President Obama being a, a um, born of an African father and also a very educated person was very aware of the dynamics of the third world, you know? Uh, and, uh, and also I think that he had an empathy for the problems of these people. So I think that he was able to see things perhaps in a slightly uh, clearer and more uh, um, balanced way. So I don't know whether others are gonna be able to, to do what he did, yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Shireen Hunter, for coming on Parallax Views. If there's anything else you just want to say in closing, for, for my part, I just want to say that uh, I'm glad that there's people like yourself, Stephen Walt, uh, John Mersheimer, people that are talking about foreign policy realism, because, you know, I may want to live in a world where we get beyond sort of the uh, anarchic world system where, you know, nation states are all vying for resources. And Maybe that'll be possible years or decades or, or centuries down the line, but we're we're sort of working within the system we have now, and I think realists have really, uh, so. you know, I made mean, the case for understanding that. But you know, the problem also, if I may, just one last thing: the problem with the realist is that people think that they uh, um, have come to identify realism, the realist school of foreign policy, uh, as some kind of a warmongers, you know? And I think that, uh, I mean, I personally believe that Henry Kissinger was not a realist. Uh, if he was a realist- I would agree. He, he wouldn't have, no, no. If he was a realist, he wouldn't have uh, insisted on uh, uh, continuing the Vietnam War two, three years more than really was necessary. Um, uh, so I think that the realists have gotten a very bad thing. Often people think, when you say realists, think that you're saying uh, cynic or, or a militarist and so on. But I think we need to rescue uh, the uh, um, the realist school and way of thinking, and I think it would be much better. I think there's nothing more damaging an extreme idealist. Most of the world's problems have been caused by extreme idealists because they are all or nothing. If you know, if you say that I am the holder of the truth and the absolute truth, then how can you compromise? But if we have a more uh, a relative, relativist and realist view, then the room for compromise would, would be easy. I mean, more, would be more. In other words, I mean, the realist perspective, and by the way, I, I would agree, I'm not sure that I would put Kissinger in the realist camp. No, no, uh, I don't. I, I right. don't. Yes. Right, right. Uh, but 
you know, ultimately what we're saying is I, I think realism offers an opportunity for more diplomacy rather than less. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, for a realist is to get the desired result at least expense, you know? And certainly war should be, is just the end of it. It's when war, uh, when diplomacy fails, that war might become necessary, although not, uh, uh, you know, it should be avoided given the changes in the nature of weaponry and the devastation. You know, we, we shouldn't, you know, use the theories that, uh, or, or mindset that could have uh, been acceptable, you know, 200 years ago today. You know, and I, I was also going to add to that. I think too, uh, when we talk about realism and and uh, whatnot, you know, I've seen some people try to say that uh, the realists uh, like Mersheimer and Walton, people that are you know uh, against um, using uh, military force immediately. I I think sometimes people uh, accuse those that are critical of interventionism of being yeah. isolationists. And I, I don't think we're isolationists either. No, no, because, you know, isolation means that you close yourself. You create, for example, Fortress America. We become absolutely self-reliant. We don't import anything. We don't export anything. Uh, we'll have do that and then, you know, just close the borders and close everything. That is isolation. Um, but when you say intervention, Intervention it has to be within certain boundaries. I mean, certainly, if, for example, uh, you know, uh, China tries to uh, invade Hawaii or whatever, obviously, U.S. to do whatever it can and uh, to prevent that, including by military means. Nobody says that. Or, for example, uh, and then of course, intervention can be done multilaterally if need be. I mean, like. For instance, when there is an incredible humanitarian crisis, um, you know, like a genocide happening or whatever, uh, then you can, you know, intervene multilaterally. The problem is that all people who accuse people that are uh, believe that you have to limit intervention is because they want to use intervention to achieve ulterior motives. So they say, you know, we have to uh, um, promote democracy. I am not against promoting democracy, but military intervention does not create democracy. Actually, by, um, by uh, upsetting societies, it makes it more difficult. And, we, and, and then you cannot ignore experience. We have to look at, for example, Afghanistan and Iraq and many other places. Has intervention led to democratic change? No, evolution and other things are important. And again, I'm not saying anything new, you know, I, I learned all these things by studying and struggling over the years. It's nothing new. Um, so yes, yes, it's- uh, there it, is, it, 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 I was just gonna say too, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of the time, uh, Interventions, uh, especially these foolhardy interventions that are taken up, uh, can often lead to problems with uh, creating the necessary international cooperation we need to deal with a lot of things. I mean, I'm, I'm one of these people that is worried about uh, climate change as a, a security issue. And I, I think sometimes when we take these interventions, it actually makes 
cooperating to deal with issues like climate change more difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, you know, uh, the whole thing today, I think the most important uh, security threat in many ways is climate change and the pandemics, which are somehow related to climate change. And uh, if we look at security only in military terms, then we are just uh, uh, making uh, coping with these other challenges more difficult. Well, I want to thank you again. Shireen Hunter for coming on Parallax News. I appreciate your staying so long. I didn't realize we'd uh, go about an hour here, but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. My, my pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shireen Hunter. And of course, if you appreciate the work here, I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We've got a one, five, ten, fifteen, and hundred dollar tier. Just a monthly donation, even of one dollar, means a great deal to this show. There's also a producer's credit shout-out benefit to $10 tier and above supporters. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Cullen, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, then consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
I'm not afraid.